Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, was missing last week, as Brian alluded to. I was down in Orlando doing some studies there. But uh, great to know that you were in good hands. And Andrew delivered the message, and the Brownings delivered the worship. As Brian had a family medical emergency. And by the way, Brian, update on that. Everyone is good. Amen. Praise God. They had a uh, serious sickness that hit their house. So we praise God that that is gone and over. And it was a a bad time for them. The doctor kind of quarantined them, and he could not come lead us in worship. And Browning stepped in right away and filled in for us. So I heard great things about that. And by the way, if you have not heard Andrew's message or were not here last week, as I was not, uh, Anthony Cap has brought us up to date technologically wise. And you can go to iTunes, type in the church at Pecan Creek, and all the sermons will come up there, and you can listen to it on your phone or listen to it at home or however you would like to. So I encourage you, if you didn't miss that sermon then or miss any sermons this summer, feel free to go there. iTunes, type in the name of the church, the Church of Pecan Creek, and all the sermons will be listed right there. Appreciate him doing that for us. Well, let's get to the book of Ephesians. As usual, I'm ready to get going into it. There's a lot to talk about. It seems like there's a lot to talk about every time I get up here. One of these days, there's going to be a short sermon. I don't know what day that is. But um, maybe, somehow, some way, but every time, no matter how I look at this, I think, oh, it's just a few verses. It's still, there's so much here. It's just wonderful to study God's Word, to look at God's Word, and to look at all that is there for us. Well, let me open up in prayer, and uh, we'll dive into the book of Ephesians chapter 5. God, thank you for this time that we have each week to come together, to fellowship with other believers, and most importantly, importantly is to fellowship with you. Help us to always remember that, that our sole purpose in occupying these seats and the coming into this building is not just for entertainment. It's not to feel good about ourselves or to hear some high moral message. It is to glorify you, the maker and creator of everything, who gave your son to die on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead for our justification so that we would be right in your eyes. Our sins have been paid for because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we give you all the glory for that. And may your word speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're at on our study through the book of Ephesians. And the first half of Ephesians, as several of Paul's letters, the first three or so chapters, especially here in the book of Ephesians, has to do with doctrine. It has to do with theology. It has to do with, remember, who Christ is, who we are as sinners, what Christ has done for us, and who God is. And then it, it deals with salvation. Our salvation is by grace. We've covered that extensively. No need to go back to there tonight. But we do want to emphasize that we are saved by grace. It's not by works. That's emphasized over and over as we go through the first few chapters there in Ephesians. We're saved by, by faith, by belief in Jesus Christ and His atoning work for us on the cross. Even that faith is a gift from God, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says. So he, he gives God all the glory for our salvation. And now, over here in Ephesians chapter 4, and proceeding to the end of this book, it's kind of a, okay, all this is true. This is the doctrine, uh, the DACA, what we believe, okay? Christianity is made up of core beliefs. Uh, Christianity is not just being a good person. 
There are certain things that we hold high that must be believed. You must believe in God to be a Christian. You you must believe in the biblical Jesus Christ to be a Christian. You must believe that he and he alone uh, is the only way that our sins can ever be forgiven. You must believe in one Savior. All this is presented. This is what we believe. This is our doctrine. Now in chapter 4, he makes a big change. And Andrew hit on this last week. But there's a big change. It's you, You've been saved. This is what you believe. Now, what does this look like in day-to-day life? So being, being a Christian is about believing a certain core set of beliefs. The gospel, we, we've gone over that over and over, but the gospel is a set message delivered by God, given to man. And that is the message that we believe for salvation. But that's not all there is to it. Now there should be a life change. Yes, you're saved by that gospel. We add nothing to it. We cannot work to contribute to that. As uh, perhaps Roman Catholics, you might use an, as an example there, they have the gospel, but they also have their works and the combination of those things bring about their salvation and their misinterpretation of the word of God. But we know our salvation is by grace. But now that we are saved, our lives should be reflecting that. So let's look at this. Andrew hit on it last week. Uh, we began... He began a section called the new life. And as you look back at that, I'm just going to quickly review, not try to spend too much time there, but look back at verse 17 where he began. And you kind of see this, this change, this transition. Uh, the sermon before we talked about the unity that we have now with all believers. Uh, but here it's called the new life, perhaps in your Bible, the section title there. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer Walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned in Christ. All right, we'll pause right there. But you begin to see this, and he opened this up to you last week, that there should be a distinct difference in us and them. Those who have been saved by God Almighty, who spoke and created the universe, even though we have sinned, he gave us the Savior, Jesus Christ. He's mercifully drawn us to him. By grace, we have been saved. We owe him everything. And he introduces chapter 4. If you look back on that, the first verse, it says, walk. In a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You are a child of God now. So that you are supposed to live. You're supposed to act. You're supposed to walk. Everything about your life should be different from the world. The world is dark. Uh, The children of God are light. And that we should be living differently. God's Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14, says, and dwells in us. We are marked by God's seal. And it is a guarantee that we are on our way to heaven. So we know all this. So there should be an obvious, distinct difference in our lifestyle. And that's what we're seeing kind of in chapter 4 and proceeding. Uh, last week, Andrew looked at this as well. There should be a difference in our talk, a difference in our walk, a difference in the things that we think about, even how we deal with anger. And just goes through this list that Andrew dealt with last week. Now, let's go over to chapter 5. And we'll kind of continue The same thought of last week as far as this distinct change. What is going to be different about our lives now that we have been truly saved? All right, so we'll just kind of walk through this uh, chapter today. And again, it's going to be very practical. It's about 
how we should be living now and how our lives should be different. We should not be walking as the Gentiles do. And that word in this context just means those who are not saved. But now that we are children of God, we should be living like children of God. And that's what we see. Look here at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We're just going to walk through this uh, chapter, kind of verse by verse tonight. But uh, here we see the beginning of this chapter, very plainly put, very simple, very emphatic. Therefore, be imitators of God. And we know the rule that I've learned years ago from the gentleman I like to hear from. And I've taught you as well. Anytime you see the word therefore, what's the question you're supposed to ask? What is it therefore? So that therefore is based on the preceding argument. Anytime you see Paul put the word therefore, you need to make sure you go back and put it in context. But we just kind of did that for you. I did that up here saying that now that you have been saved, now that you have been rescued, uh, what is supposed to change? And it's therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So there should be this massive difference in our lives. Who are we supposed to imitate? Uh, it is God himself. Oftentimes we look around us and we look at the world and we look on TV and we look at friends, neighbors, people we work with and we compare ourselves to them. And this is a kind of a religion-based comparison. Uh, and we're not supposed to do that. We don't look to our neighbors and say, oh, well, I don't say the words they say and I don't drink the things that they drink and I don't do the things that they do and there's a little and we compare ourselves to the others yes we're supposed to be different than them but you don't just look around at the people around you to see if you're doing better than they are ultimately who are we supposed to be imitating it is God and God is perfectly holy God is sinless and that is our example so we don't just look to those around us and say, well, at least I'm not like that person, like the Pharisee did to the tax collector over in the book of Luke. At, at least I'm not that person. Thank you, God, I'm not this person. But we compare ourselves to God as far as we are seeking holiness because our God is holy as well. Uh, quick question. So how should we live now that we have been saved? And the answer is right there in verse 1. Be imitators of God. Jesus is our model. He is the one that we are trying to imitate. And yes, we're supposed to be different than the people around us. But we are supposed to be striving, pursuing holiness, looking at Jesus as the example for us. And we take this back even to the Old Testament. And we find comparisons, as we, we often do in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But if you go back to... Uh, way, way back to, to Genesis, to Exodus, this Leviticus, you find that as God pulled his people out, he separated them. He called them a holy people. That means they were separated for him, for his service, and that they were supposed to live differently. God gave them the laws that they were supposed to live by. And there was supposed to be a distinct cultural lifestyle difference in his people versus everyone else in the world. We see that in Leviticus 11.45, just kind of sum that point up. It says, For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And you can make a quick comparison to here, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So he has called us to him. 
We are his. Just like the Israelites were supposed to live differently because God had revealed himself to them. He had given him, them the law. He had, he had appeared there on the mountain, if you remember, and just all these great blessings that there should be a difference in the way they live. So this is what we're finding here in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, let's move on down verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is pure love. And if we look back at Ephesians chapter 1, we, we saw where uh, they were bragged upon by Paul. And they're in early in chapter 2, I believe, as well, where, where Paul brags on the Ephesians that they are truly loving others, and it's due to their love of God. And we, we see this mentioned here as well in verse 2. That we are to walk. Remember, walk is your lifestyle. It's how you live. It's what you're doing. It is your actions. But that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we are to walk in this love. And, and the more you can grasp, and I don't know if we ever will, perhaps when we are glorified in heaven, maybe then, of course, we'll get a fuller idea of it. But God's grace is so amazing. It, it just blows the human mind when you begin to grasp it. That, that he's labored the point here that you do not work for your salvation. You don't do anything to contribute to it. God doesn't look at your life and say, oh, they've done this, they've done that, or they've gone to church enough times, that person I'm going to save. It's not like that. It's based on pure grace unmerited favor from God. But who were we before he saved us? Ephesians chapter 2 lets us know, right? We were by nature objects of his wrath. We were, we were followers of the sons of disobedience, followers of Satan, followers of the course of this world. But there in chapter 2, uh, he says, but God made you alive through Jesus Christ. And this grace is just mind-boggling to think about. You mean I didn't do anything? I didn't deserve it? I didn't earn it? I didn't do this, this, and this, and this? Then God saw that I was going to be a good person and decided to say, you did, did nothing? No, that's absolutely it. And so this grace of forgiveness, this love of God that he has bestowed upon us, that he has not only forgiven us our sins, but he has made us his children, that we are now right with God in a way that is, again, we can't even begin to comprehend it. That we were by nature objects of his wrath because we had sinned. But now our sins have been removed. And not only removed and forgiven, but we've been given the righteous, perfect status of Jesus Christ. He represented us perfectly, takes our sins, he gives us his righteousness, and now we are seen as children of God. This is love. And this type of love, there, there's no, no other comparison to it. Uh, God has bestowed upon us love when we deserved his wrath. And the point of this is to walk in love. Who should be walking more in love? Christians or non-Christians, right? I mean, we, we, the more we get our minds around God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, who we were, and yet he's given us love, he's given us forgiveness, it should, it should exceed, it should pour out from us. It, it should go about the way we walk, that we are quicker to love, we are quicker to forgive. We are people who love God and therefore love our fellow humans as well. All right, let's keep going. Uh, the greatest, greatest commandment is to love God. I made a note of that, of course. And the second is to love others. So this is kind of summed up here for Paul as well, that we are to be walking 
in this love. This, this walking in, we find it, if you want to look back, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we saw it there. He emphasizes walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been saved. Uh, called, sorry, which you have been called. God calls us to salvation. We walk in that. Uh, here he says it again in verse 2 of chapter 5. Walk in love. Uh, we are supposed to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, maintaining unity and keeping the peace. We saw that. He, he mentions all these things over here in 4. What's it mean to walk in Christ? There should be a difference, right? That we should be humble. Uh, we should be gentle, patient. Uh, the way we love should be different as well. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, and the futility of their minds, the wastefulness of their minds, okay? We are to walk in knowing that God has made us, God has created us. We are on our way to heaven. We have a Savior. Our sins have been forgiven. We're to walk in the knowledge of God. So we're to be walking differently than those that are around us. There should be an obvious difference about it. Uh, God has saved us out of mercy, out of grace. Now walk like it. Uh, look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named amongst you as is proper amongst saints. All right, we, we see many areas being addressed as we go from 4 all the way to the end of the book of Ephesians. And now he's dealing with this area of immorality as well. And if you look closely, he says it should not even be named amongst you. That this type of immorality should not even be named amongst those who call themselves believers. Because we are believers, because we have been saved, we should be walking in a different way. And in this particular area, he calls out now, just as in other areas, you know, our language should be different. The way we deal with anger should be different. Uh, the thief should no longer steal over in verse chapter 4. But now he's moving into this area of our lives as well. Uh, this type of immorality is any activity, uh, immoral activity, that, that you can think of in this category that we're speaking on here uh, that is outside of marriage or before marriage and would also include any deviance to God's pure uh, directions in this category of immorality. It's going to come. I'm going to put this tonight for some sensitive ears. But uh, so it is It is reserved for the covenant bond of marriage. Anything before that, anything after that is, of course, uh, in error. It would be sinfulness and would fit in this category. Also, within gender, we, of course, know, if you want to make a note of this, uh, Leviticus 18.22 uh, lets us know that, that the SCOTUS decision and dealing with that, and you know what that would mean, is actually an abomination before God, that he definitely does consider the homosexual lifestyle a sin. And that is evident from Scripture. We see that. Make note of that. Leviticus 18.22. And we'll also look at Corinthians 6 to see that as well. So, so what he's saying here is we, our lifestyle should be fitting of what he has assigned for that area of our life. And, and what we have from God is that it is a covenant relationship that is based between two people that should never stray, and they should always be together, and that's it. So there's, there's nothing before, there's nothing after, there's no going outside of that marriage bond. It's a covenant before God. But here he's dealing with this to show that there is a difference in the world, of course, 
and the difference that Christians should be living. Uh, is this area of immorality dealt with here in chapter 3 uh, anything new that we are dealing with? And if you know a little bit about history, I mean, if you've even studied the Word of God from cover to cover, you know that that is not the case. We see this area of immorality coming up constantly in human history and in biblical history as well. It is something that is always having to be dealt with. We see even in, even dealt with in the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery of the top ten commandments that God, the creator of this world, could give humankind these ten rules. Think about it. He could have come up with a million. He could have come up with a billion rules. But he condensed it all down to just ten. And that this area of our lives makes it in those top ten. It's that important to God that this is going to be a distinguishing mark of his people that they are supposed to be holy and obey me in this area. And to go outside of that, it is sin. So he deals with the Ten Commandments. He deals with it there in Leviticus as well. Uh, you look back at Solomon and Gomorrah. Of course, this, these types of sins were extremely prevalent even uh, during that time as well. So we, we see it mentioned quite often. We even look back to David, right? David sinned in this area as well. And it's important to note that, that who David is. And David is a person who knew better. But yet he sinned in this area. But it was not the death knell for him. If you remember the story, he, he tried to cover that sin up. He saw Bathsheba. He desired. And the adultery began to grow and grow and fester and fester until it became an active uh, in, engaging sin with his body, not just with his mind. But next thing you know, he tries to cover it, cover it, cover it up. And then finally the prophet comes to him and, and tells him face to face what he has done. And, and David is broken. He becomes a broken man. He says, I can't believe, I've, I've sinned. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against God alone during all this. Yes, he saw the sin with her and with her husband. He had messed up bad, but his sin was directly against God. But he repents. He confesses of that sin. He acknowledges it is sin. He repents. He turns from it and becomes a person after God's own heart. So because someone has sinned in this area, we don't write them off, but we call them out as as Nathan did to... Uh, to David that they, this is sin. What are you supposed to do with sin? Well, not conceal it. You confess it. You repent. You turn from it and you pursue God. All right. So we find this here that this area of our life is supposed to be different from the world around us. All right. Uh, so with that said, quick question. Should we set up the standards of living, um, set up the same standards of living or different standards for this area of our life? And obviously, it is different. Obviously, it is different. Uh, interesting note, I was reading a message from uh, a great pastor. His name is Timothy Keller, Tim Keller, last week. And it, during the message, he cited this person who was a Pulitzer Prize winning author in the 70s. And the, the name of the book is the, the Denial of Death. It is written by a professed atheist. And he was dealing with the question of how do atheists deal with the fact that they don't believe in God. And this writer, who is a self-professed atheist and knows many other atheists and has studied this, he says they deal with it by engaging in this type of immoral activity. He says that's what he finds to be 
the, the agent that somehow satisfies the fact that they don't believe in God. So what they find is extreme immorality in this area of their life. So you, you think through that, and you find that to be true in the Bible as well, that those that were not the Israelites, remember the, the Ashtaroth pole and, and the, the god of Baal, and, and if you know about how those gods were worshipped, it involved being immoral in this area of their life. But the Israelites were supposed to be different. They're supposed to be holy. They're supposed to be sanctified because God has called them. And that's what we're supposed to be. Surrounded by immorality, but standing for what is right in every area of our life. Because God has commanded us to do so. All right, let's move on to verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. We look at this passage and uh, and and. It is quite simple. Let there be no foolish talk, no jesting, crude joking. They're out of place for the believer. But instead, everything that comes out of our mouth should be thanksgiving. It should be pure. It should be right. It should be holy as well. This is also kind of uh, sandwiched in between verse 3 and verse 5, which is dealing with sexual immorality. And uh, when you study the comments on this from other great theologians, they say it is all together. So with this crude joking, this filthiness, which is very common in this area of immorality, it is speaking less than should be of a gift that has been given by God to a covenant marriage. And it's really interesting when you study the notes on this that that this gift that has been given by God to a covenant marriage is supposed to be uh, extremely special, extremely unique, and is not supposed to be talked of with filthy talk, foolish talk, or crude joking. That is supposed to be held in honor, which rules out what we might call like locker room talk. Uh, Verse 5, for you may not, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of obedience. Uh, there were false teachers during the time of Paul that basically said, if you have been saved, you can live however you want, do whatever pleases you, don't even worry about it, everything's okay, those sins have been forgiven, and whatever you do with your body, it's totally fine to do. And Paul refutes that. He refutes it in Romans, he refutes it in several of the epistles, and even here as well, he is letting them know, absolutely not. Yes, Christ has forgiven you of your sins, and now you don't live as sinful as you can, We still find this to be true today also. People say, oh, I've been saved, so God's going to forgive me so I can do whatever I want to do. I spoke to a gentleman just last week on the phone, and and his wife said this exact same thing to him. His wife was leaving him. She is a professed Christian. I will use that in quotation marks. But uh, said, I can do this, I will do this, and I know God will forgive me because I am a Christian. If you ever have that way of thinking or hear someone thinking that, you should check yourself immediately because that is not the expression of a true believer. A true believer does not want to go against the will of God in this premeditated way of saying, I will move forward with this even though you're a believer speaking to her spouse, even though I know God's word, even though pastors have told me not to do this, the Bible tells me not to do this, I'm going to do it anyway because I know God will forgive me. That is not the talk of a Christian. That is the talk of a person who says they are a Christian, but 
is not a true believer, all right? So be careful. Those that are who, who are believers, we desire to please God. And we don't want to be that person who takes God's grace for granted. Oh, he's forgiven me of all my sins. I can live however I want to now. That's not true conversion. If you have been truly saved, you have a desire to walk a new walk because of the one who has saved you by grace. And we don't want to take God's grace for granted. Instead, we have this new heart that we've been regenerated, right? Where we, we, we hate sin because we love God. And our lives are spent in hating sin and loving God more and putting sin away and pursuing God more. And this should be our pursuit is to love God more. Uh, verse 6 Let's us know the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. That sons of disobedience is straight over here mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2. That those were the ones that were following Satan. We were them. that were following the course of this world, the sons of disobedience. But now we are the children of God, the children of obedience. So we pursue obedience to God in this area of our life. Uh, he re- references, well, we could cross-reference 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I believe I have it on my screen, but you might want to put this with the Leviticus passage we looked at earlier if you're interested in coming up with a, with a, with a good core belief and how you will deal with the SCOTUS decision. Uh, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Look closely at that, verse 11. Such were some of you, uh, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, yes, the people he was dealing with, the people who are now believers in Corinthians, they were doing those things. But again, there's this change, right? They were acting like that, but now they're not because their sins have been removed. They've been forgiven. They've been washed. And now they're beginning the sanctification process of of becoming a holier and holier person and putting that sin away. Let's move on to verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one point in time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, we, we look at verse 7. It says, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were, past tense, you were like them. Now don't become partners with them again. And and we think back to Israel once again, how they were removed and they were set aside from the the world around them. And that we are to be like that as well. They were warned, hey, don't go back into, don't intermarry with those who are not in this group who have been called out by God or you'll begin to look like them. And sure enough, this is what happened to Israel over and over and over. And the same warning is given to us as believers. Be careful. You're in the world, but don't be of the world. Don't become partners with those who are not even believers. Uh, This could have to do with marriage as well. We know we're not supposed to be unequally yoked, but also uh, best friends and BFFs. Those who you bring into this inner circle of core friends, you will shape each other. 
and you will shape them, and you will begin to rub off on each other. As Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, so it is that you bring in close, close people into your life that are not believers, you got to be very careful because you are now partnering with them in a special relationship. So this, this core group, this close circle that we have of friends needs to be a fellowship of believers. When you're in a close group of believers, my goodness, it's amazing how you can grow spiritually and how you're calling each other out. And, 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 and this, this growth happens because it, they're just, you're around believers and, and they're not tempting you to go off and do this or tempting you to think like this, but instead they're edifying you. They're speaking truth into your life. And this is the way we should be as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I have this on the screen for you. You don't have to turn there. 14 through 17 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling amongst them and walk amongst them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Should you be best friends with a non-believer, according to these passages we've just read in 2 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5, 7, 8 through 9? The answer is obvious, okay? We cannot have the best, best friendship with someone who has nothing of primary importance with us. Not saying do not be friend, friendship to some degree, but this 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 doing life together in a in a very intimate way, this close, close relationship, we have to be very careful because there's not going to be a lot in common on this higher plane of thinking. So we have to be very, very careful on this. Uh, John three twenty, I'm just gonna read that one to you. It says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So this darkness and light, right, they repel each other. If this room was pitch black and I uh, turned on a light, immediately the light would, would dispel the darkness. And light could not, darkness could not overcome it because the light was there shining. And so it is with people. He's saying here, what does the light have to do with darkness? And what does a person who is pursuing self-interest alone and is a son of disobedience and following Satan, following the course of this world, an object of God's wrath, have to do with a child of God, uh, a person of light, uh, a person who has been rescued and saved. This should be a whole different way of thinking. So we have to be extremely careful as we do life here. All right, let's carry on. Let's look at verse 11. Uh, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Instead, expose them. Look at verse 11. What part are we supposed to take with them? Absolutely none. Take no part. So I'm telling you, this is so tempting for young people, for teenagers, uh, for adults alike. How close can you get to the fire and not get burned? You know, it's, it's hey, my friends want me to go to this party or go do this with them. And, well, I'll go, but I'm not going to. You, you know, do everything that they're doing. And there's always this battle of how close can I be to the popular things of the world and acting like the world, but yet, yet good enough. And, 
and, and we try to get so close to it. And Paul says, no, have no part in it. Make a clear delineation in the way that you walk, the path that you're walking through life and the path that they're walking through life. Have no part in it. Don't let them be mixed up to where, oh, you're a little like them. No, separate out. Be holy. Have no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead, your light should be exposing them. Do you know anyone, or even yourself, who have taken a little part in darkness, only to find that the little part has grown bigger and bigger? Interesting point to think on here. Uh, we know the one thing we know about sin is that sin is never satisfied. It desires more, 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 more. And the moment that we begin to take a little part, that little part, if you don't confess and repent and turn, oh, it grows. It wants more and more and more. And the darkness begins to come in and we desire more sin and more sin. So that's what he's saying here is take no part in it. You are called to be different than them. Don't even engage in it. So the the question to to ask yourself is, do you take part in the darkness? Uh, How much are you around it? Put up with it or even contribute to it? Paul says, take no part in it. So we're not to get as close as we can. So we don't walk right in, get as close as we can to it, and then try to just not get too contaminated by it or just engage a little. No, we'd stop. We don't even go there. We don't even get near it because we're a child of God. God. As Jesus is the light, we are children of light. So instead of going engaging in it, we expose it. Quickest example on this, not to pat myself on the back, but I was in a fraternity. And just the quickest example on this, because I don't like to take too long with illustrations, but I, uh, I was a believer in, in, in this fraternity house, and I was really, it seemed to be about one of the only ones there. But early on, first semester, uh, you know, I, I did a few things that, that stood out that I, I was a believer and and as far as even language go and, and people would use God's name in vain and so commonly and they would come into my name and just use it loosely and just use God's holy name in vain and and before long I, I, I couldn't stand it anymore after just a couple of days I said hey I mean I, I'm a believer and I, and I believe this is this is who God is this is who God has revealed himself to be and you're actually breaking one of the ten commandments by saying that so I honor God respect God you know if you could just just not use his name in vain and 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 within a, just a couple of weeks before long uh, you would see people correcting themselves they, they would come in and begin to say it and they would self-correct themselves I wouldn't even say anything uh, before long you could see you could I could hear people as I'm studying in my room the door is open guys walking by using God's name in vain and someone from another room would stick their head out and say hey that's Trey's room you can't use God's name in vain over there right because there's there was there was this not true light but there's this light that began to emanate out that something's different over there on that end of the hallway and when you walk by that room you should talk different because the light is invading the darkness. Now, I use that as a simple example, all right? Again, not to pat myself on the back, but just to let you show just a little area of your life how even that, it begins to change those around you. And, and you're exposing the darkness, not being a part of it. And that's what we're supposed to be as we walk because we're children of God and we're imitating God. Let's move on. Uh, verse 12, For it is shameful even to speak of the things... That they do in secret. Again, this contrast of believers and non-believers. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This passage is expressing how exposing sin in the light is the way that more people become a part of the light. We are supposed to not just put up with sin, which is so common today, moral relativism, hey, whatever is right to you is right to you, and whatever is wrong to you is wrong to you, but just don't tell me what's wrong or right in my life. Uh, That's not what God has caused us to do. We are to shine bright that we are, everything about our life is supposed to be different than the world and that we are shining so bright we are exposing the darkness, not letting the darkness close in, not putting our light, our candle under something to keep it hidden, but we are to expose the light of Christ. And we are to act different, talk different, live different, and expose the darkness that is around us. And we do indeed live in a dark day that needs to be exposed. Uh, let's carry on here. Um, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. That's oh, a beautiful passage. I think I put it on uh, even Facebook today, this week, as I was uh, concentrating on this one morning. But look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. He's talked about this walking, this life that we live in and how it is supposed to be different. And now he brings it right back up again. Look carefully then how you walk. This this causes us to be introspective. We don't just wake up in the morning and go about our day like non-believers. We don't just sit down with a remote control on the TV and watch what everyone else is watching. You don't just get in your car and hit the radio station that's popular that everyone else your age is listening to. You don't just say the things that everyone else is saying. You don't act like everyone else is saying. Why? Because you're paying close attention to how you walk. It's this whole mindset of thinking, wow, I've been saved by grace. God has called me to him. I should be living differently. And it's this introspection, all right? It goes on up here as you think about your life. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this, we'll study him later in the year, is Jonathan Edwards. He analyzed his life every day. And at the end of each day, he set aside time to analyze that day to see if he had wasted 15 minutes of the day that God had given him. And he would go through his day. And at the end of each week, He would spend more time on this, analyzing the whole week. Because he says, sometimes at the end of each day, I'm a little prejudiced and don't think as clearly as I should. So at the end of the week, I will do this and look back at the week to see if I wasted any time that God had given me. And the point of it all is, and he would do this at the end of each month, end of each year as well, is that every person has only been given so much candle to burn. There's only so much wax that we have. So don't just go about your life and living like everyone else around you is. But you've been called out by God. So live like he wants you to live. Look at your life carefully. Look carefully how you walk. Don't just go with the flow or do what you feel like doing. Be careful. Make wise choices. Use caution. All right? This is a great way to walk. How do we walk as Christians? We walk carefully. Uh, We walk as wise, not as the unwise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time. Kind of like what I just said here. We only have so much wax. Use it wisely. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Would you like to know God's will for your life? Yes, all everyone wants to know uh, the Lord's will for our life. Sometimes we get way too... 
uh, non-biblical with this. And, and people try to say, well, they try to hear God's voice in unique and different ways and try to, try to get specific answers from God. But the, the main thrust of this is that we know that God has called us to be holy. He has called us to walk in a wise way, not as the unwise. And that what we know of God should affect our decisions and it should also let us know what the will of God is for our lives. Uh, as far as, am I going to be pursuing sin if I go there? Or pursuing holiness? God has called me to be holy. So what does that do for me? How does that affect my life in knowing God's will? Uh, should I date a non-believer? Obviously not, right? Should, should all my best friends in life be non-believers? Obviously not. How should I act, act in this, these areas of my life that we mentioned earlier? Obviously not like that. So who we know God to be holy, and he's called us to be holy, lets us know the will of God for our life. We should be striving for holiness. Verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, just quick questions as we, do, as we bring this part to a close here, but how can you tell if a person is drunk? Uh, you can tell by the way they walk. You know, if you've ever been around drunk people, seen drunk people, seen them on TV or whatnot, uh, you can tell because they behave differently. They walk differently. They can hardly walk. They trip. They fall. They stumble. Uh, how can you tell if a person is a believer? Now, we don't know. We can't, if God knows absolutely who is a believer and who is not, but we can look how, by the way they walk, that there should be something different. And that's what we see here in verse 18. Do not get drunk on alcohol, which leads to sin, this, this controlled by a substance, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Anytime a person engages in, in recreational drugs, in alcohol, they begin to yield control of their decisions. Instead of making wise choices, they begin to make unwise. And they yield control. They give something else control. But instead, we are supposed to be filled by the Holy Spirit. So that there should be a difference in our walk. Just as you can tell if a person is drunk walking down the road, uh, police officer gives a sobriety test what do they do they check how they walk they can tell a difference between a drunk person and a non-drunk person so it is with a believer we should be able to look at your life look what you did today look what you did this week and see that oh that person is being controlled by the holy spirit they walk differently let's bring this to an end uh, verse 19 addressing one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here at the close of this section, we are to fellowship. Our, our fellowship, as, as we are with other believers, unlike filthiness and, and words that are not becoming of Christians, as we come together, it should be edifying to God. We should know God's word, study God's word. Uh, the songs even should be on our tongue when we're around each other. And it should be this beautiful worship service anytime we're around other believers. That's what's being said here in, said here in 19, chapter, uh, verse 20, that we should be thanking God for everything and who he is. And the last part of this section is going to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's where we'll pick up next week. What does this look like uh, even in a marriage, uh, husband and wife, now that we have been saved 
How do we run our home? How do we deal with each, each other? And how do we, with this word submit, is going to be brought up here. And it will be talked about more next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for letting us have your word to study, to learn. It is a challenge as we study it, as we look in these different areas that we are supposed to be different. And that we're supposed to walk differently. It is a challenge for us to walk like this. It is hard. It's not easy. But this is who you've called us to be. You are holy and we are to be imitating you because we are children of God. And that we should, that you've loved us so much. You've saved us and given us mercy and grace even though we deserved wrath. And we should be desiring to live differently. And I pray, God, that, that every single person that is in here, from the youngest to the oldest, from the singles to those who are married to children to teenagers, may we walk in a way where people can see there is something about their strut. There's something about their walk that is different. They don't say the same things. They don't do the same things. They're different. God, may our light be bright in this dark world. May we think carefully how we did as the great example of Jonathan Edwards and his life and how he thought at the end of each day as he analyzed it, as he looked closely at it to make sure he was living each day as much as he possibly could for you. May we be more like that as we live for you each day. And God, I pray as we cover these passages at the end of Ephesians, obviously we are not perfect. We still sin. We still mess up. And I pray if anyone uh, feels the conviction as we go over these different areas of sin that are listed here, may they do as David did when he committed horrible sins, adultery, murder as well. But he confessed it, he repented of it, and he turned from that sin. May that be the example for us as well, knowing that no matter what sin has been committed, all sin is forgiven in Jesus Christ on the cross for those who have faith in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you don't mind, let's stand and worship this God and be, give our thanks to him for what he has done.